This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There are few patients that are more frustrating to care for than those who have medically unexplained symptoms. They can take a great deal of our time and generate huge medical costs. Today we're joined by Dr. Kevin Fleming, a Mayo Clinic physician in general internal medicine and also director of the Mayo Fibromyalgia Clinic. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Thank you. Well, let's start by talking about the term functional patient or functional disorder. Uh, We've often labeled patients with unexplained medical symptoms as being functional or having a functional disorder. Is, Is that term appropriate? I think that it is. The The main problem is in describing uh, what are medically unexplained symptoms. So when patients have disorders, have symptom sets, have complaints, and you do tests and you cannot find a disorder that would explain those symptoms, then uh, traditionally that's been called functional because what you're really saying is um, there are body problems and there are mind problems, and those are completely separate. It turns out that's false, that people who have uh, bodily disorders, it affects the way the brain works, and people have brain problems, it affects the way the, the, the body works, and those are not completely separable. And so the term functional syndrome is old, and it was meant to uh, say that something was entirely psychological. It turns out it's false, and so it turns out that theory is false, so that the uh, current thinking is that medically unexplained symptoms are caused by brain problems that change how the body functions. And so the term functional no longer means psychological, but a change in the way the brain and body work together. Hmm. Okay. Now, there are actually some conditions that were once felt to represent a functional disorder, but later it found to have a medical explanation for them. Now, I've, I've been around long enough to recall that irritable bowel syndrome used to be called functional bowel disorder. And uh, you spend a lot of your time in the fibromyalgia clinic, and there's new information about fibromyalgia patients as well. Can, can you speak a little bit about fibromyalgia? Because we used to think that was a, uh, uh, a functional disorder as well. So th- the most classic cause I can think of of a functional disorder, what used to be called a functional disorder, but is not as globus. So the sense of something in the back of the throat or back of the mouth uh, was thought to be an hysterical problem, meaning it was called globus hystericus. Uh, It's now simply called globus because most of those people actually have reflux. Um, And similarly, when you look at irritable bowel, there is a mind-body connection in that there, there is something wrong with the way the gut is working. Clearly, for some people, things move way too fast and they have diarrhea and they have pain, or things move way too slow and they have terrible constipation, but physiologically something is occurring and you can actually measure it. Uh, similarly, in fibromyalgia, what's interesting is that was thought to be entirely psychiatric in that people would have widespread pain with no... Uh, physiologic cause apparent. Uh, The problem is that over time, uh, testing has shown, uh, for example, on MRI scans of the brain, that you can actually see in the the sensory area uh, of the brain, the areas where they hurt actually light up 
in the correct areas that they complain about. So there is something happening in the brain that accounts for the pain that they have. It's simply the brain causing the pain problem rather than the peripheral muscle, tendon, joint, or nerve causing the, the, brain, the pain problem. So as providers, we've probably been looking at the wrong organ to try to find out what's causing all their symptoms. Yes, and, and assuming that because it involves the brain, it means it's false or fake or psychiatric only. Mm-hmm. There, there's certainly going to be psychiatric uh, overlay with it uh, or conditions that you develop because if you think about it, if you hurt all the time, you will get depressed. Um, that's not a surprising thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who are depressed actually can have more physical pain than people who are not depressed. And so there's a lot of overlap with it. But I think the important thing is to recognize that these are not separable, meaning the body does hurt and the brain is functioning abnormally and that the symptoms are as real as uh, any other kind of injury. So the amount of physical pain that they have is as real as if they have rheumatoid arthritis. You mentioned depression. Uh, Let's talk about that just a little bit. Now, I've been fooled a few times on pursuing a variety of physical or somatic symptoms that patients have coming up empty in terms of a specific cause, only to find out that they come back with other vague symptoms and eventually back into the diagnosis that they may be depressed and they respond nicely to uh, treatment for depression. How often does depression play an underlying role in some patients with unexplained symptoms? Depression is quite frequent, but not uniformly present. And so uh, it's important for patients to understand when you talk with them that they may also be depressed, but that uh, the depression itself, although it may increase their symptoms, may make them feel worse, may make them hurt more, isn't entirely the cause. Because what the patient may hear is, you're just depressed, and if we treat depression, your symptoms will go away, isn't actually true. Uh, They may feel better, and they may have fewer symptoms, but they still have that function change in the brain um, and will likely continue to have symptoms. So the way I usually present it is the symptoms may be making you depressed, or your depression may make your symptoms worse, but you have to treat both problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, they're not going to feel better. Um, And it's an important distinction because if the patient thinks you're saying, this is all in my head, that's one of their worst fears, that you're saying your symptoms aren't real, you're making it up, um, and, and that's actually not the case. It, it, it's something the patient really very much needs to hear is that you also don't think this is, in quotes, all in their head. And that's often what patients hear from us when we tell them that their symptoms are from, from depression. They think, well, this is all in my head. He doesn't believe me. Yeah, and and not being believed is uh, really devastating to patients. That's actually what I think makes them move from physician to physician, from clinic to clinic, and trying to seek answers is that they do so until someone can actually sit them down and explain to them, how is it that you can have widespread pain that's so bad you can't work, and yet all your tests are negative? Because if you are unable to do that, Uh, from just thinking of my own practice, until I was able to explain the physiology of how they hurt, they never believed me. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you have um, a a mechanism, a physiologic mechanism of how the brain creates pain in absence of injury, once you can share that with them, which I usually do through slide sets, for example, um, once you're able to do that, then the patient says, oh, 
that makes sense. I can see how that would hurt. And, and then you can focus on recovery. Until then, it really seems like you're saying, just trust me. Um, and, well, people don't. Right. <laughs> you don't give them reason to trust because you can't even explain the physiology of the pain. Yeah, okay. Are there some medically unexplained symptoms that are more common than others? Are some organ systems overrepresented in these, uh, these patients? Well, absolutely, and I think the most common ones would be would be headaches and gastrointestinal symptoms. An example would be the irritable bowel, constipation, um, and, and the reason for that is the at least for the GI part, the intense wiring of the gut and connections with the brain, and and people do call the intestines, the gut, the second brain for a good reason. Um, there's a lot of connections between front brain, adrenal gland, and the neurologic sy- systems of the GI tract. And now as we're discovering, a huge component of the uh, microbiome of the gut and the important role that plays not only in how food gets in us and how we digest food, but also the function of the gut and the function of the brain itself. It's, it's odd to think that you're gut bacteria actually controls your mood to a large extent by how much serotonin it actually creates in, in, in your body and for use in the brain. So um, that makes sense to me then why the gut would be one of the primary areas for which you'd have a lot of these kind of symptoms. Well, in the past, nobody believed that uh, bacteria could have anything to do with peptic ulcers either. So. Exactly. So what, what medicine in the past has often done is to call crazy what it doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, even if you look back at the history of medical writing into the 1700s, uh, these kind of symptoms were evident back then, uh, paralysis and GI symptoms being very high among them, and we still have those same sets of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Day-to-day practice can sometimes feel isolating. Join us at a live conference for the opportunity to connect with colleagues while learning from experts. Our Mayo Clinic physicians speak about their practice and share cases from which we all can learn. Ask questions, network in small groups, and return home with new perspectives. Register today at ce.mayo.edu. In your experience, do these patients come in primarily looking for a relief of their symptoms, or do they have some underlying fear that these symptoms represent a serious disorder? Uh, Yes, (laughs) meaning both. Um, So people often will have a fear that, that because you can't find anything, what they have must be really terrible um, because you haven't been able to explain it. And the second part is that they are afraid that you're going to tell them they're crazy. And, and the third is that they're really quite concerned that they're never going to get better, um, that they're actually going to get progressively worse and disabled from this. And, and the word fear is really important there because what actually is occurring and part of the reason they have uh, these symptoms is the part of the brain that's being amplified excessively is the fear system, the limbic system, the survival brain, and that is part of why they have physical symptoms. And, and that becomes 
repeatedly amplified over and over and over again. And so, as you can imagine, if you have some chest discomfort after you've had a heart attack and you've been in the hospital and three months later you have chest discomfort again, your fear is, I'm going to die. And then you go in and get checked and nothing is there. Nothing's wrong. The electrocardiogram is normal. The Holter is normal. Your repeat stress test is normal. And you keep having this chest pain and you keep thinking you're going to die because that what was happening before. Um, it's important for uh, physicians to recognize that patients who have these symptoms have an incredible state of uh, internal awareness and fear that what they have means something really horrible. And so one of our jobs is to not just reassure them that it's not, because that's important, but also to explain to them that the part of the brain that's reading these sensations is um, illogical, it's irrational, has no sense of time, and it doesn't care if I do tests. So if I, I can't prove anything to it, it's impervious to data. Um, and so if I try to say, well, this test is negative and this test is negative, they will still have those symptoms until they actually start turning that area of the brain down. Hmm. I recall when I was new on staff just a few years back, uh, I was groaning in the lunchroom to one of our older, more senior colleagues about the fact that I had to see several patients with headaches, and I just really did not like trying to manage patients with headaches because I told them I could never figure out what's causing them. I can never make them go away. And uh, my learned colleague said, that's not what they want. They want to know that they don't have something serious. They want to know they don't have an aneurysm. They want to know they don't have a brain tumor. I says, well, that's easy. I says, sure it is. Just, you know, work with that. And I did. And headaches have not been a big issue ever since. I, I think that's true, especially with gut symptoms, for example. People have a concern that Again, something is undiagnosed, and that doesn't mean that you have to do exhaustive testing, but you can explain to people, and this usually works for me, is simply to explain how physicians think about those kind of symptoms and how we evaluate for worrisome causes, and, and that we don't usually do uh, exhaustive searches uh, unless the symptoms really don't fit. Uh, and, and you're correct that that being able to say what you don't have is important, but then I go back to it's insufficient for patients because then they want to know, well, what is it? If it's not cancer, it's not Crohn's disease, why do I have diarrhea all the time? You can actually explain, well, this is how the, the mind and body work together to create excessive rate of um, uh, gastrointestinal transit meaning diarrhea. Mm -hmm. um, and, and once they understand that there's a reason for it, that actually has helped my practice where then they can understand what I understand. Um, but in the past, I didn't used to do that. I just would say, uh, everything's negative. Here's some, here's some medicines to try to slow things down. They never quite grasped it, right. largely because I wasn't explaining it to them. And that's the approach I've used, you know, explaining how the GI system works. As you said, it's often overrepresented in these symptoms, and it's just finely tuned. A little bit too much, you get loose stools, a little bit too little, you maybe get constipation, but once you explain to patients that there is not a serious disorder based on the tests that you've done or the exam that you've done, then you can work on controlling the symptoms. There are things that we can do to firm up the stools, things we can do to make them less constipated, and uh, it's a relatively flexible organ system to work with, and uh, patients are quite grateful when we can do that. 
Exactly. And when you have patients who, in whom you identify that they have what looks like a functional syndrome, it's useful to start looking at, uh, do they have others? Because these often cluster together. So an example would be when patients have fibromyalgia, they very often have irritable bowel and migraine headaches and chronic fatigue. There's lots of overlap. So their diagnoses tend most often in research to be related to whose office they showed up in. Uh, and that's usually based on what their most prominent symptom is. So they may have lots of diarrhea, so they end up seeing GI and they get diagnosed with irritable bowel. But if they don't complain about the fact that they have chronic dizziness, they never get tested for it. Mm -hmm. and, they, uh, and they may also have migraine headaches that they never tell anybody about. Um, so when you see patients who have many physical symptoms, uh, not only does that tend to cause you to have irritable bowel <laughs> because you see their mm -hmm. list of uh, how am I going to get through this, but if you find that you have at least one functional syndrome, then you have to wonder, do they have other ones? And, and they do tend to run together. So some patients have many, many physical symptoms, uh, but they don't all have it. Uh, a quick example would be a patient who has long-standing rheumatoid arthritis with pain in their hands and feet and destructive joints. And then the disease burns out, and their sed rate goes down, their CRP goes down, and yet then they start having widespread pain, and then the rheumatologist is thinking, well, why do they hurt all the time? They don't have inflammation. What's the origin of the pain? And they may try uh, more immunologic agents without effect, and what they've developed is secondary fibromyalgia. They've had pain so long, the pain essentially becomes permanent. Uh, it no longer reflects the course of their disease. So those patients may only just have widespread pain and no other syndrome, uh, whereas uh, some patients will have every box checked <laughs> for every symptom, and, and that's when you start to think, gee, I wonder if the, the main problem, the main underlying disorder is this central sensitization problem. A big fear of providers is uh, missing a diagnosis when a patient comes in with symptoms. Um, I imagine that this condition of unexplained medical symptoms, functional disorder, can be quite expensive. I imagine we order a lot of unnecessary tests, but maybe to maybe reassure the patient, but whatever the reason, I suspect a lot of tests are ordered here that don't uh, show us anything. That's true. Um, this does cost a lot of money because people do come in and see many specialists and have a lot of tests. The question really revolves around, well, how many and which tests do you need to do to satisfy the idea that uh, there's nothing seriously wrong with them is really largely debatable. And so whether it's necessary or unnecessary is really a judgment call. I tend to think of it more as how many do you need to do so that you can satisfy the issue of uh, can I give a reasonable physiologic explanation for their symptoms? And, and that usually can be done with fewer tests than you think uh, because, again, you don't have to be exhaustive about every syndrome. A quick example. You have somebody who has irritable bowel and you do some simple tests if they're due for colonoscopy because that's their age. You do that and, and also check for... Uh, other laboratory studies and EGD maybe with biopsy to look at diarrhea. 
once you've done those, and it doesn't have to be, again, extensive, once you've looked at the stool and made sure they don't have some kind of chronic infection, you don't keep looking. And then if they have, say, well, I'm, I also have dizziness, you may only do bedside testing for um, vestibular function and, and not really do any uh, more detailed analysis, say MRI of the brain or ENT studies. That is, once you have identified somebody who has one or more functional syndromes, you can be more cautious because then you're more likely to say, I wonder if these additional symptoms are also part of that same process. And then you need less and less testing for each additional set of symptoms unless there's some alarm feature. Mm -hmm. Kevin, you've got a course coming up on this topic of medically unexplained symptoms. Is that right? Yes, it, it, I, I think it's a, a really good idea in that what we did was get uh, specialists in every area to talk about the functional syndrome that they most see. Um, and it's interesting. I learned so much the last time uh, we gave this course because I was able to uh, hear from the experts in those fields the kinds of disorders that they see and, and I thought I knew a lot about that before, but gosh, some of, those, uh, some of those doctors are really, really very good at telling you how they've learned to deal with not just the explanation part, but some of the symptom management part, which is really a, a subset of um, not very widespread knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard to look at how do you control so, uh, a simple symptom such as abdominal bloating. Um, you'd think that would be simple to look up, but there's not a lot written about it, and the people that talk about it here are really good at a really common, difficult symptom. Hmm. The course is a systematic approach to medically unexplained symptoms, and it will take place from August 8th through August 11th, and it will be held in Miami Beach. Well, we've been talking about patients with medically unexplained symptoms with Dr. Kevin Fleming, a Mayo Clinic physician in general internal medicine, and director of the Mayo Fibromyalgia Clinic. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Today's episode is sponsored by Mayo Clinic CME. Learn from the medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations around the globe. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. New podcast episodes are added weekly. Please subscribe to Mayo Clinic Talks using your favorite podcasting platform to join us. Stay healthy and see you next week.